Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug addiction, depression, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Healthcare professionals are widely praised as heroes. But beneath the veneer of every successful medical worker is a far more flawed figure, a human being. While they take care of us in our times of need, they aren't impervious to devastating failures or even minor inconveniences. Each day, they must manage their own hardships on top of balancing our care. Kimberly Clark Signs, a licensed vocational nurse, found this out the hard way in 2008. Despite delivering life-saving treatments on a daily basis, she was still a fallible human. And more fallible than most, when she was unable to cope with her crumbling marriage and substance use disorder, Kimberly took out her personal frustrations on her vulnerable patients and manipulated life-saving dialysis treatments to kill. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alistair some medical insight into the case of Kimberly Clark Signs, an LVN who killed 99.9% of germs, almost as many of the patients she treated. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on Kimberly Clark Signs, a licensed vocational nurse who poisoned at least 10 of her patients at a dialysis clinic in Lufkin, Texas. This week, we'll discuss Kimberly's medical work, her killing spree, and the shocking events that led to her capture. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. On April 1st, 2008, an ambulance sped through Lufkin, Texas, racing toward its destination. The medics knew the route well. They'd been called to this same dialysis clinic dozens of times, typically for patients suffering from kidney failure. Today's patient, 
was 77-year-old Clara Strange. Time was of the essence. She had experienced a cardiac arrest while being treated for chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease typically does go hand in hand with heart disease because their common denominator is a compromised vascular system. One usually leads to the other, and this is because the organs are so crucially codependent. When the kidneys aren't functioning properly, the body experiences electrolyte and hormonal imbalances that put unsafe stress on the heart. Diseased kidneys can lead to an overproduction of an enzyme called renin, for example, which can ultimately cause dangerously high blood pressure from a loss of potassium and sodium retention. They also have impaired production of erythropoietin, a hormone that helps make red blood cells, so with kidney disease comes anemia. Because of this, poorly functioning kidneys aren't receiving enough oxygenated blood, so the heart compensates by pumping faster and harder. Over time, this can cause a heart muscle or ventricle to enlarge and become less functional. On the flip side of this, a compromised heart can't adequately deliver blood to the kidneys, so cardiovascular disease and kidney failure are predictably linked, which affects other organ systems and further complicates overall health. Emergency workers worked desperately to save Clara, pulling out all the stops for a last-minute miracle. As they frantically provided life support, no one noticed the nurse standing just off to the side. Kimberly Clark signs. She looked like a normal nurse, an average person. But Kimberly had played a bigger role in strangers' crisis than anyone would have ever guessed. Standing next to Clara Strange in 2008, Kimberly didn't appear much different than she had her entire life. She was rather unremarkable, and because of that, there's not much known about her before she turned criminal. We do know that she was born in 1973 and that her family settled in East Texas. As part of a relatively quiet, working-class family, Kimberly seems set up to live a perfectly mediocre life. However, Kimberly's monotonous path hit a hiccup when she gave birth the summer before her senior year of high school in 1991. According to a friend, Kimberly soon dropped out of school to care for her newborn son. With limited job opportunities, Kimberly clung to the child's father, Chris Hopper, who multiple students at their school saw as Mr. Wright. His pairing with Kimberly stumped them. She seemed much less charming and less motivated. Nevertheless, the two stuck together for six years until October 1997 when they divorced. It's unknown what led to the split, but it's fair to speculate that they were simply on two different tracks. Chris wanted more from his life while Kimberly was ambivalent about her own. Still, as a newly single mom, Kimberly needed to find some kind of job. So, in 1997, 24-year-old Kimberly began working in the offices of Fleetwood Transportation, a trucking company. Working at Fleetwood, Kimberly met 29-year-old Mark Kevin Sines, who went by Kevin. They hit it off from the get-go. However, 
Kevin wasn't necessarily the best suitor for someone with a six-year-old child. In the past several years, he'd been charged with both possession of marijuana and theft, neither in small amounts. The third-degree felony charge suggests that Kevin stole over $750 worth of goods. Meanwhile, he was caught with over five pounds of cannabis, worth thousands of dollars on the street. It's enough to suggest he was selling the illegal drug as well as using it. Despite Kevin's criminal past, Kimberly fell hard, and they started dating later in 1998. In 2000, a couple years after their first meeting, they married and welcomed Kimberly's second child into the world. Around that time, Kimberly left her job at Fleetwood Transportation to be a full-time mother. According to those who knew Kimberly, she always seemed engaged in her kids' activities. So, for a time, they were a typical American family. However, after two years at home, 28-year-old Kimberly grew bored. Feeling directionless, she began searching for a meaningful career and landed on nursing. Around 2002, Kimberly went back to school to become a licensed vocational nurse, or LVN. Even though LVNs don't have as much training as registered nurses, the role they play in clinical settings can be invaluable. Licensed vocational nurses mostly work in hospitals, nursing facilities, and ambulatory sites, like dialysis clinics, for example. They provide basic bedside care for sick or recovering patients, and depending on what state they're in, normally work under the direct supervision of registered nurses. Unlike RNs, LVNs aren't normally allowed to do much hands-on treatment, like dressing wounds or administering intravenous drugs, for example, but this can again depend on individual state laws. Their normal day-to-day duties can include helping nurses administer medications, recording vital signs, and entering data into a facility's electronic medical records. Despite her less rounded training, working as an LVN would have let Kimberly make a difference in a patient's life, for better or worse. And in 2005, 32-year-old Kimberly was ready to make that difference. She landed an LVN job at Woodland Heights Medical Center. As far as we can tell, Kimberly got along fine with her co-workers and patients. No one at the hospital seemed to notice anything out of the ordinary about her. That was until August 2005. Mere months after Kimberly was hired, hospital management noticed that a certain controlled medication, Demerol, had gone missing. During an internal investigation, the hospital learned Kimberly had supposedly administered Demerol, an opioid painkiller, to patients who weren't in pain. When Kimberly's bosses found Demerol in her purse, they suspected that Kimberly had not just mismedicated patients. She'd also stolen drugs for personal use. To confirm their suspicions, the hospital requested that Kimberly take a urine test. When she turned in a fake urine sample, they promptly let her go. Though her firing no doubt crushed Kimberly, no action was taken to remove her credentials. Over the next year, she was hired for three other nursing roles. 
While not much is known about her time at these jobs, none of them stuck. It's unclear whether Kimberly was a poor fit or the lack of stability was symptomatic of a worsening substance use disorder. Regardless, four jobs in just over a year didn't look great on Kimberly's resume. And it seemed that things were only about to get worse. After more than seven years together, Kimberly's relationship with Kevin turned rocky. In June 2007, the authorities were called to a domestic disturbance. Apparently, Kevin and Kimberly had gotten into an argument at their home. To de-escalate the situation, Kevin left to visit his mother's boyfriend. However, Kimberly followed. Outside of the boyfriend's house, the pair got into a physical altercation, and Kimberly injured Kevin. When the police arrived, they arrested Kimberly for assault. It's unclear if Kevin ever pursued criminal charges. However, in the wake of the fight, he filed for an emergency protective order against his wife. While Kimberly's life had certainly started ordinarily enough, by this point, it had cratered. Two months later, however, 33-year-old Kimberly saw a light at the end of the tunnel. In August 2007, she found a job as an LVN at a DeVita dialysis center in Lufkin, Texas. The clinic was understaffed and eager to make a hire. And for Kimberly, the job offered a fresh start, one where she could leave all of her past problems behind and focus on her career. It seemed like a great turn of events for everyone. But unfortunately, for both Kimberly and DeVita Dialysis, Kimberly's work would quickly turn lethal. Up next, Kimberly kills her first patient. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 2007, 33-year-old Kimberly Clark's signs found a lifeline at a DeVita dialysis center in Lufkin, Texas. After being let go from her last few jobs and facing some serious marital issues, the clinic's LVN job was the fresh start Kimberly needed. During her first several weeks, Kimberly went through training as her supervisor showed her the ropes. They taught her how to set up a hemodialysis machine, flush ports, and clean water lines. 
For dialysis patients, ports and water lines are necessary for administering medication and keeping a patient hydrated. These hemodialysis ports, or catheters, are basically small silicone and polyurethane tubes which get inserted into blood vessels. Because these ports act as vital delivery systems, they need to be regularly flushed to remove possible blood clots and other occlusions that could be dangerous for the patient. They're usually first flushed with saline, which helps maintain the patency or openness of the port. This is then normally followed by flushing with a saline heparin solution, which minimizes the potential for blood clots by removing any leftover sticky platelet cells from the port's walls. Between uses, ports are removed and sterilized with bleach in order to prevent infection. Given the already compromised health of the patients connected to hemodialysis machines, these catheter cleaning measures are paramount to their safety. A clogged port can be lethal, so proper maintenance is a must. It's an important job, and from the get-go, Kimberly was constantly busy, caring for multiple patients, helping operate the dialysis machines and mixing the bleach-based cleaning solutions. Initially, she did grasp the tasks at hand, but she soon grew agitated, something her co-workers observed. Often, Kimberly approached her day-to-day duties with utter disregard for the patient's well-being and even annoyance. At home, she showed symptoms of depression and by March 2008, was taking the antidepressant Cymbalta. But while depression can explain some of Kimberly's behavior, it certainly can't explain all of it. That spring, her thoughts turned dark, and her internet searches even darker. On one occasion, Kimberly searched the effects that bleach would have on someone's blood. It was a bitter foreshadowing of the events that would play out on April 1st, 2008. When Kimberly arrived at the Davita Lufkin Dialysis Center that morning, it seemed like an ordinary day. Patient care technician Whirling Guillory carefully went through his routine as he walked 77-year-old Clara Strange through her dialysis appointment. He set up her lines, monitored the amount of blood flow through the machine, and assessed Clara's overall health. While thousands receive dialysis treatment every day in clinics like this one, it doesn't mean that the service isn't without its risks. Other than monitoring basic kidney function, nurses in these settings need to keep their eyes on many different variables, including cardiovascular metrics like blood pressure and pulse rate. If either of these gets too high, it could indicate that a patient's receiving too much fluid, which could result in a deadly arrhythmia, stroke, or cardiac arrest. It's also important to monitor a patient's body temperature, as an abnormally high fever can suggest complications like a serious vascular infection. Electrolyte abnormalities should be routinely evaluated as well, as abnormal sodium, potassium, and phosphorus levels could have lethal consequences. As a rule of thumb, it's generally appropriate for nurses to check on all of these barometers about every 15 minutes. This is really important stuff, Alistair, and anyone charged with monitoring a hemodialysis machine carries a patient's life in their hands. Guillory was fully aware of this. 
So when he needed a quick break in the middle of Clara's hours-long appointment, he followed protocol and summoned another caregiver to monitor his patient. That's when Kimberly stepped in. Guillory briefed her and stepped out of the room. Upon his return, he relieved Kimberly and checked on Clara. The nurse was shocked. Clara lay in her chair, unresponsive. Guillory noted that the blood flow on the dialysis machine had been turned down from 400 to 300, seemingly without reason. And his patient was suffering from cardiac arrest. Staff immediately called for an ambulance. Within minutes, emergency services arrived to take Clara to the hospital. Unfortunately, they weren't able to resuscitate her. It was Kimberly's first murder, but it would be far from the last. Only 30 minutes after Clara's cardiac arrest, staff found 68-year-old Thelma Metcalf unresponsive. Facing their second emergency in an hour, they reeled in the nearest nurses to help. One nurse began performing chest compressions. The second called for an ambulance. The third was Kimberly. One nurse instructed her to pump oxygen into Metcalf's lungs with an airbag until the paramedics arrived. However, they quickly noticed that Kimberly wasn't doing anything. And the blood flow on Thelma's dialysis machine, like strangers, had been turned down. Hemodialysis machines are incredibly complex and sophisticated pieces of equipment, but this doesn't mean they can't be fooled. By design, they're programmed to sound off if blood flow becomes too high or too low. It's likely that turning down the blood flow and adding a foreign substance tricked the machine into detecting a normal level of blood volume. If Kimberly administered poison without decreasing the flow of blood, the machine's alarm would have sounded in response to a perceived excess flow volume. To simplify, she was able to keep flow volume at an appropriate range by adding a filler, which prevented any mechanical alert. This was a crafty move on Kimberly's part, and it's likely the cause of death would have been blamed on complications from low blood pressure rather than poisoning. She was effectively able to hide what she did. That lost time was lethal for Thelma Metcalf. Paramedics transported her to the emergency room, but it was too late. Doctors declared her deceased. Back at the dialysis clinic, the staff flew into a state of confusion. While it wasn't unheard of for patients to code from time to time, Two in the same day, less than an hour apart, was incredibly rare. Still, unnerving as it was, no one suspected a crime. The life expectancy for those on dialysis isn't long. Any number of things could have killed Thelma and Clara. Nothing was found amiss in either room, and there were no obvious signs of foul play. Both of the deaths appeared to be natural. Still, DeVita's national branch sent regional manager Amy Clinton to the Lufkin Dialysis Center to look into the cases and develop a plan for mitigating future deaths. Clinton arrived the next day, April 2nd. She quickly realized this facility had a 7.1% higher fatality rate than other dialysis clinics in the state. 
Clinton immediately implemented several alterations to the workflow, all in the name of increasing patient safety. For one, she made sure that some nurses worked exclusively with administering medications, while others provided basic care for patients hooked up to the dialysis machine. Sadly, the workflow changes did not increase patient safety. In fact, they may have done the complete opposite. In the following days, Kimberly Clark's signs grew increasingly agitated. More than once, co-workers heard her complain about the new stipulations and mutter about her desire to find another job. Two weeks later, she struck again. On April 16th, Garland Kelly entered the DeVita clinic for routine dialysis. Kimberly was put in charge of his medications while his patient care tech was Sharon Dearman. According to Nurse Dearman, everything seemed normal at first. But as she made the rounds with other patients, the alarm on Kelly's hemodialysis machine went off. Concerned, she rushed to Kelly's room. There, she reportedly saw Kimberly standing next to the machine, about to flip the switch that would silence the noise, thereby preventing emergency intervention. Dearman told Kimberly to stop as she rushed to the patient's side. Garland Kelly was visibly unresponsive. Dearman immediately began CPR. Another nurse who came to help later recalled seeing an unusual, fibrous-looking blood clot in the patient's bloodline. A blood clot in a line isn't common because these clinics realize the associated risks and do everything they can to prevent such an occurrence. It's possible that Kimberly didn't flush Kelly's port with saline or the saline solution with heparin, which could have resulted in the clot that was later discovered. It could have even been that she injected him with bleach, which could cause blood clots by damaging the blood vessel walls or by dangerously altering the blood itself. There's also the chance that Kimberly injected Kelly's catheter line or IV bag directly with a cardiotoxic poison that caused atrial fibrillation, which is a type of arrhythmia that could release pre-existing clots into the circulation. Depending on how long Kelly went without oxygen, Dearman's attempt at CPR may or may not have been fruitful. Although it's always imperative to try this kind of resuscitation, it only takes about four minutes for someone to die from anoxic brain damage. Ultimately, it's hard to know for sure what happened here without patient records or witnesses, but the clot could indicate tampering or, at very least, negligence. Emergency services transported Kelly to the hospital, but sadly, he never regained consciousness. At this point, it's unclear if Dearman or anyone else at the clinic was suspicious of Kimberly Clark's signs. But given her proximity to all three of the deaths that month, it's likely that at least some of her co-workers were cautious around the sullen LVN. Still, no amount of distance stopped Kimberly from attacking again. Just one week later, Kimberly found another opportunity when a fellow nurse took their break. The patient, Cora Bryant, seemed relatively healthy, watching TV while hooked up to the dialysis machine, until Kimberly pushed a syringe of fluid into Cora's port. 
The alarm on the hemodialysis machine blared. Another employee heard the noise and came into the room to find a worried Cora asking, what are you giving me? Before Kimberly answered, Cora went into cardiac arrest. Emergency services were called and paramedics transported Cora to the hospital. While she survived the initial heart attack, she never regained consciousness. But Cora's dialysis lines provided important evidence. Like she had allegedly done with Demerol at her previous place of employment, Kimberly was providing unprescribed injections. But unlike Demerol, these injections were not medication. They were bleach. Besides turning someone into a human bottle of Clorox, introducing bleach into a patient's body could have deadly consequences. When bleach and blood mix, this commingling results in hemolysis or the destruction of oxygen-carrying red blood cells. This can inhibit oxygen from reaching vital organs and can result in blood clots, liver injury, and most commonly, kidney failure. This is because the kidneys act as a blood's filtration system and they're highly sensitive to hemolysis. In fact, if death didn't occur, a large enough dose of intravenous bleach could lead to permanent kidney damage, resulting in someone needing ongoing dialysis treatment. This gives some perspective as to what kind of damage this can do to someone who's already on dialysis, Alistair. Although it all depends on concentration, putting bleach directly into the patient's port would likely be more problematic than putting it into the hemodialysis bloodline. This is because it would be a more direct and acute exposure. Also disturbingly, a typical autopsy doesn't test for bleach. So from an outside view, these injections initially appear to be natural deaths. After her fourth murder, Kimberly Clark Sines was apparently able to walk away without so much as a question from her superiors. Up next, an overconfident Kimberly grows reckless. Now, back to the story. 34-year-old LVN Kimberly Clark Sines took a sharp turn in April 2008. She was frustrated and depressed and grappling with a failing marriage. And while none of these things are out of the ordinary, Kimberly's coping mechanism was. Within a few weeks, she killed four patients at the dialysis center where she worked. It didn't take long for Kimberly's colleagues to question why so many sudden and unexpected deaths had come that month. With attention from the clinic's corporate operations, they strive to provide better care, being extra careful with their dialysis practices. Meanwhile, Kimberly only grew more irritated. On April 28th, Kimberly's manager ordered her to work as a patient care technician with the incoming patients. For some reason, this upset Kimberly. Her co-workers claimed that she preferred handling the medications since the work was easier and limited her interactions with patients. So when Kimberly did have to work with patients, she took out her frustrations on them, maliciously. This time though, her actions didn't go unnoticed. While hooked up to dialysis machines, patients Linda Hall and Lurleen Hamilton watched as Kimberly placed a bucket 
filled with bleach on the floor. According to Hamilton, Kimberly appeared nervous as she slowly bent down and placed a syringe into the solution. After drawing the mixture into the syringe, Hamilton saw Kimberly walk over to another patient undergoing dialysis, Carolyn Reisinger. Hamilton's eyes widened as she watched Kimberly push the bleach into Reisinger's IV before performing the same act on a sleeping patient, Marva Roan. But she wasn't done. Kimberly went back and injected another syringe full of bleach into each patient. Then, Kimberly disposed of her weapon in a container meant for sharp objects and walked away. Within moments, Reisinger began reacting to the bleach. She moved around in her chair and complained that she was incredibly warm. At that moment, the nurse charged with her care came into the room. They sprang into action by placing an oxygen mask on Reisinger and pushing a saline solution through her IV. While the nurses treated Reisinger, Roan's blood pressure plummeted. She felt weak, grew nauseated, and had trouble speaking. The room must have buzzed with confusion as the second patient's health declined. Though Kimberly's co-workers were unclear why both women were suddenly experiencing difficulties, they diligently dealt with the emergency. Luckily for Reisinger and Roan, their symptoms didn't last long. While bleach is very toxic, there are some factors that might have contributed to their milder responses. It could have been a matter of these patients' overall health, and maybe their kidney disease hadn't progressed as far as that of the others. It might even have been that the bleach solution was more diluted for these two patients. If the amount of bleach was less concentrated because of higher volumes of other fluid or blood, it would have less of an impact and ultimately would have been less deadly. The result of this would still be painful and extremely uncomfortable and could lead to chest pain, severe vomiting, and an overwhelming heat sensation as per Reisinger's reported symptom. To mend the situation, it would have been a good idea for nurses to administer fluids to the surviving victims. The increased fluid volume would have brought their blood pressure up, increased their circulation, and further diluted the bleach in their bloodstreams. Supplemental oxygen would have been a good idea, too, because this would combat the hemolysis caused by the bleach. These two patients were really lucky to be alive. Kimberly's luck, however, had run out. With Kimberly out of the room, the witnesses, Hamilton and Hall, spoke up about what they'd seen. When asked why they hadn't alerted someone as soon as they saw Kimberly injecting bleach, the pair expressed fear they were hooked up to their own dialysis machines and worried that Kimberly could attack them. In response, management sent Kimberly home for the day so they could further investigate. Meanwhile, Amy Clinton, the DeVita regional manager, saved the disposal containers in the patient's room and removed all the syringes. She performed a quick test on each using a strip that would turn a different color if bleach was detected. When the strip changed color, Clinton called the police. After they arrived, Clinton turned over the syringes and sections of the various patients' dialysis lines. This marked the beginning of their investigation into Kimberly Clark's signs. 
The next day, April 29th, the clinic scheduled an all-hands staff meeting to discuss the past month's events. Kimberly didn't show. And when a co-worker called, she said she was at a convention center with her daughter. Later that afternoon, the co-worker met Kimberly across town and found her distraught. As tears fell down her face, Kimberly swore she hadn't hurt anyone. But claims of innocence weren't enough to quell police suspicion. Later that day, officers brought Kimberly in for an interview. In the interrogation room, Kimberly claimed she only used the syringe to accurately measure out the bleach for the cleaning solution. While the clinic typically used measuring cups, she claimed that she couldn't find any on hand that day. The officers listened to Kimberly's story and then grilled her about her interactions with the two injured patients the previous day, looking for inconsistencies or slip-ups in her accounts. But after a 50-minute interview, they had to let Kimberly go. They didn't have enough of a case to arrest her. Yet. As she returned home, Kimberly may have become aware of the grim fate she faced. That evening, she swallowed some pills, then headed to her estranged husband's temporary residence. Outside, she waved her arms wildly, trying to get his attention. Kevin likely realized his wife was high and called the police. Officers found Kimberly banging on Kevin's front door, but as they approached, Kimberly didn't appear confrontational. When officers noticed that she seemed to be under the influence, they arrested her for public intoxication and she spent one night behind bars. Over the next few weeks, DeVita fired Kimberly, the state board revoked her license, and the police gathered their evidence. On May 30th, 2008, authorities arrested 34-year-old Kimberly on two charges of aggravated assault for her attacks on Carolyn Reisinger and Marva Roan. A few days later, Kimberly was let out on bail under the condition that she couldn't work in healthcare again before the trial. Leading up to the trial, the authorities continued their investigations. They sent away the syringes and lines from the dialysis clinic to the FDA and CDC for testing. As suspected, the labs found traces of bleach. However, the remnants weren't always consistent. While they located bleach in some parts of the line, others were clean. To get a clearer understanding of Kimberly's actions, authorities needed to look at samples of the victim's blood to find any indication of bleach in their bloodstream. However, that wasn't an easy task. To detect the presence of bleach, examiners sought a biomarker called 3-chlorotyrosine. 3-chlorotyrosine is a biomarker one that shows up in response to high amounts of sodium hypochlorite, the scientific name for bleach. To access its presence, experts employ biomarker testing, which involves laboratory examination of tissue or bodily fluids like blood and saliva. To test for this biomarker for bleach, the lab uses specific chemical reagents. These particular reagents ultimately create chemical reactions which identify these targeted biomarkers. 
So, in essence, if the reactions to these reagents indicated the presence of the 3-chlorotyrosine biomarker, it would more than likely mean that those patients had been poisoned with bleach. The results were damning. Of the dozens of blood samples examined, including control samples of normal blood, only the victim's blood showed signs of that specific biomarker. In total, investigators linked Kimberly to at least 10 poisonings, five of which resulted in deaths. With ample proof, their case could move forward. And four years later, in 2012, it went to trial. 38-year-old Kimberly's defense said she was nothing more than a scapegoat for DeVita dialysis, a reproachable facility that merely wanted to cover up a systemic failure in the clinic that had resulted in five deaths. They brought up Kimberly's character and mentioned that Kimberly hadn't committed any crimes or acted out of order in the years following the incident. They also questioned what motive Kimberly had for killing five people. They claimed she had no reason to do it. She was just an ordinary woman. And while the prosecution couldn't provide any solid explanation for Kimberly's actions, they could speculate. While there was no single moment that set her off, the poisonings were a culmination of every frustration in her life. Kimberly's behavior had grown increasingly testy until she'd cracked. Of course, the eyewitness testimony and lab results were more convincing than any speculation about her mindset. In April 2012, the jury found Kimberly Clark signs guilty of capital murder and three counts of aggravated assault. A judge sentenced her to life in prison. Since her sentencing, Kimberly Clark Sines has filed numerous appeals, all of which have been denied. Rightfully so. Kimberly's harm to the patients at the DeVita Lufkin Dialysis Center is inexcusable. This is a sad case on many levels, and it's hard to pinpoint what Kimberly's thought process was while taking her personal grievances out on these poor, unsuspecting patients. Other than increased supervision, more communication, and heightened technological surveillance in these clinics, it's hard to say what could have mitigated the terror that Kimberly inflicted. Those affected by her actions would never be the same. And given that thousands of healthcare workers face the same issues she did, the explanation that she broke under pressure is hard to swallow. We all experience intense stressors in life, but Kimberly's coping mechanism boggles the mind. It's true. While there's a certain amount of justice in Kimberly's life behind bars, victims' families were left to wonder how something as simple as frustration could turn an ordinary nurse into a lethal killer. For her victims' loved ones, the knowledge of their departed, gasping just moments after they'd been poisoned with bleach, will forever haunt them. If there was more to her story, we may never know. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thanks very much, Alistair. 
You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.